All right, well, uh, let's uh, grab our Bibles or turn our Bibles on and, um, and go to Matthew chapter 5. Uh, Matthew chapter 5, we're going to be looking at verses 27 to 30 today. Now, there's this kind of popular misconception about Jesus, I think sort of out in pop culture and, and maybe to a certain extent even in the church, that, that what Jesus really did was just kind of come along and he was a, kind of a Rodney King who says, can't we all just get along? I'm a lot more tolerant. I'm a lot less dogmatic than all that Old Testament law that you read. And, and I'm, trying to, I'm trying to lighten up. I'm trying to, to make things more up to date. And really all you need to do is just love each other. Let's just love, right? That's, that's really his message. He's just sort of this robe-wearing, you know, slightly effeminate, Galilean, feather-haired peasant who just walks around with message of love, peace, and joy. And, and a lot of people sort of have this idea about Jesus. The problem with that idea is Jesus, because Jesus, if you'll actually read what he said, will not let you come away with that kind of thinking, I said, two weeks ago, all we got to do is go back a few, a few verses where Ryan talked to us and look, we looked at chapter 5, verses 17 through 20, where, where Jesus says, I didn't come to abolish anything. All that Old Testament, it's still very real. I didn't come to lower the standard. I'm going to raise the bar. I didn't come to lighten the scale. I'm going to put my thumb on it. I'm going to show you what it really means because you have mechanized this thing. You have created it in some sort of mechanical code and you let yourself off the hook all the time. And Jesus says it is way deeper and it has to go farther than that. So he ends in chapter 5 verse 20 by saying, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the Pharisees, you, will, you are not a Christian. You will not enter the kingdom of heaven. This is a mind-blowing statement. How in the world can our righteousness exceed that of the Pharisees? These, Jesus, are the most pious religious prigs I've ever seen in my life. And Jesus says, because it's not what you think it is. Like, this goes way deeper than you can possibly imagine. That Old Testament law is wonderful and perfect and holy and righteous and just, and it's going to push into your heart in ways you never thought imaginable. And so what Jesus is going to do is he's going to go, look, I'm not going to make light of sin. I'm going I'm to start off in chapter 5, verse 21. I'm talking about murder. Now, I think everybody in this room probably agrees murder is wrong, right? Like the, the wanton, premeditated taking of an innocent human life is a bad thing. It's murder. So Jesus, I'm going I'm to talk about something everybody agrees about. I think most people would agree adultery is wrong. Being unfaithful to your spouse, cheating on your husband and wife. Most people would go, that's a bad thing. Whether I call it sin or not, that, I think we probably ought not to do that. And Jesus goes, I want to show you because what most of you think is that as long as I don't physically murder, as long as I don't cheat on my wife or my husband, I'm good. I have not, I've obeyed. I'm right with God. God Jesus goes, no, your sin is much deeper than that. I have to show you that that doesn't get you off the hook and I have to push and show you the extent of your sin. I want you to see how awful this is. Now, why does Jesus need to talk to us about how bad our sin is, the extent of our sin? Well, he's got to talk to us about this because if we have a low view of sin, then we will have a very low view of God. We will have a very low view of our salvation. We will be like the Pharisees. Our righteousness will never exceed the righteousness of the Pharisees until we understand sin. So, so 
So if I had to just sort of summarize, we're going to look at verses 27 to 30 today. And yes, he's talking about adultery, but there's something bigger going on here. There's something in the context that Jesus wants us to get at. And if I had to summarize just what he's saying, I'd say it like this. That, that sin is a ruthless evil that is bound up in your heart. And so you must be ruthless with it. That's his point in verses 27 to 30. It is a ruthless evil. It's in your heart. It's not just external behavior. This is not mere, Christianity is not behavior modification. It's heart surgery. It's a heart transplant. And you have to be absolutely ruthless without, with that sin. So Jesus is going to say, it, you know, to, to Jesus, he'd say, look, it, it doesn't matter if you've never had sex outside of marriage, never cheated on your wife, never done any of these things. If it's in your heart, this is what God is after. He's after. He looks at your heart and he sees it there. And if he sees it there, that's what will make you less righteous than the Pharisees. See, see we like to think that as long as I behave right, as long as my, I modify my behavior to line up with sort of Christian principles, and that's what it means to be a Christian. No, not at all. So much so that Jesus is going to say this to people that talk like that. He says, you are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts. For what is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. What are you talking about? How is it? Like, we exalt people that do good things. We say that's a great thing that somebody, you know, gave money to, to get rid of malaria in Africa, whatever. And, and God says, but I see the heart. And if that heart is not one that is doing this out of obedience, out of trust, out of faith in God that loves Jesus, it's an abomination. It doesn't, doesn't do anything. I don't want it. So th this means that, that we need to talk about sin. Now, I know most of you didn't get up this morning and say, you know, gee, I hope when I get to church today, Chris talks about sin, because that's what I'm really going for. Um, and in some ways, that's kind of unfortunate, because if we don't talk about sin, then we don't understand a whole lot. Like, like you understand, if I pull sin out of our discussion, I can't make sense of my Bible. There is, an, there is, if you will, a narrative arc to Scripture that makes zero sense without the doctrine of sin. And so we have to. We have to talk about sin. You've got to see this. Otherwise, your Bible is meaningless. If sin is not real, if sin is just no big deal, whatever, if it's not there, your Bible is utterly meaningless. Doctrines fall like crazy if there's no such thing as sin. They don't make sense. The Bible is just, just nonsensical. So he, here's, here's what I want to do. I want to just try to set sin, this doctrine of sin, beside some other doctrines in the Bible. And I can't do it with all of them because we could be here all day. But let me, let me show you some big ones and show you that when you set them next to each other, the one doesn't make sense without the other. They're, they're, it, it, it's nonsensical. So, so, so let's look, let's set sin beside the doctrine of the cross. Why did Jesus have to die? Why did he die? What's the point? Remember Michelle and I 
had the privilege of leading some neighbors of ours to the Lord many years ago when we were first married. And, and we sat them down at our, at our dining room table and we began to talk to them. And the guy like practically interrupted me and said, you know, I just have a question. Why did Jesus have to die? I mean, what, what's that all about? Because here's what we do. If we make light of our sin, if we think that our sin is small, then, then, then we make light of the cross. The cross seems like, what, what's happening? Like, not only do we make light of it like it's not that big a deal, we might go to the other extreme and see, think, it, it seems like this massive overreaction on God's part. Because after all, what have I done? I mean, okay, I cheated on an exam when I was in college, or I wrote a bad paper, or, you know, I, I, uh, I, I sped, actually intentionally, on the way to church today. I, I, I was going 25 miles over the speed limit, and I, I'll admit I did it on purpose. And Jesus had to die for that? See, because here, here's what we do. I mean, that, that's just offensive to some of us. Because what we do is we measure the offense by the offender. There's not one of us that looks at our heart and thinks, I'm a terrible person. Most of us think, I'm pretty good. I'm pretty good. I don't need someone to die for me. I can tell you for sure. Because I'm not so bad as that. And the Bible's going to turn the table on you and go, you don't define what is sinful. I do. The Bible's going to turn and say, you look at it from the perspective of God. I mean, I've said this before. Look, we all think this. The, the, the sin is always defined, it, defined by the one who is offended against. If I sin against a teacher, I might flunk the class. If I sin against my wife, I might lose a marriage. If I sin against a friend, I might lose a friend. If I sin against the state, I might get a ticket or a fine or go to jail. If I sin against a holy, infinite, perfect, gracious, just God, the sin is infinite. There's no such thing as a small sin. See, so if I don't understand sin, I don't understand the cross. The cross is just is, is, is craziness. But how about this one? How about, how about putting sin next to Christmas? Because right? Christmas is something we all celebrate, and it's this doctrine we call the incarnation. That is that God became flesh. Now, why? It is that becoming flesh is pointless outside of sin, meaningless. Like, Jesus was not in heaven going, hey, God, it'd be really cool if I could go down there and sort of, you know, hang around with human beings and human flesh. I'd just kind of like to see what that's like. That doesn't happen. He says, I have to go. I have to actually go because these people aren't getting it. And the only way this can be accomplished is through my death. So I've got to go and I've got to die. So the purpose of Christmas is actually Easter. And I've got to go and I've got to pay a price for them. Well, why didn't God just shout from heaven? Why didn't he do it a different way? Why didn't he just say, hey, everybody, just obey me? He did. He gave us a whole Old Testament he gave us and said, follow this, obey this. And no one, no, not one did it. Because information isn't enough. We don't need more information. I think I can safely say in all reverence that if there was another way, God wouldn't have given up his most precious son to die. 
but he did. And it means this is meaningless. His, his coming to earth Christmas is meaningless apart from sin. Well, well, how about sin and what we call the new birth or being born again? Some of you have heard that, and some people think of born again as sort of fundamentalist right-wing language. It's not. It's actually biblical. It's, it's, it's Jesus saying to this man, Nicodemus, unless you are born again, unless anyone is born again, they cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. Nicodemus, do you know this? Well, what's the point of being born again without the doctrine of sin? What's the point of being birthed again without the doctrine of sin? And again, this is somewhere where a lot of us just bristle. Like, are you kidding me? Like, so Jesus is saying that my heart, that my life is so bad, I need a do-over? That's offensive. And Jesus said that's exactly what will happen. There will be people that are offended. There will be people that persecute you. There will be people that don't like what you have to say. This message is foolishness. But there will be some that Jesus says to some it's an aroma of death, to some it's an aroma of life. Because, right, if you're a Christian, you heard that message and said, wait a second, there's a do-over? There's, that's a thing? Yeah. You can be born again. You can be a new creation. Jesus can wipe the slate clean and start over. It doesn't, doesn't make any sense apart from sin. Well, how about, how about putting sin next to the whole doctrine that we all love, God's love? The, God's love doesn't make sense apart from an understanding of sin. See, here's what I mean. Um, one of the ways the biblical authors measure God's love, over and over again, in fact, is by putting it up next to our sin. They're saying this is a crazy kind of love that most of us can't even hardly fathom, that this is how much God loves you. So, so last week, we sang a song, How Deep the Father's Love for Us. And I love this hymn because look at the words of this hymn because this hymn writer got it right. How deep the Father's love for us, how vast beyond all measure that he should give his only son to make a wretch his treasure. See, he's going, this is, this is hard. I'm, I'm hardly able to fathom this, that he took a wretch. I mean, people glibly, mindlessly sing songs like Amazing Grace. I mean, every recording artist that wanted to kind of get a gospel recording, at some point, Elvis recorded Amazing Grace. Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. It's not amazing without the wretch part. It's understandable. See, so let, let's suppose my son Tucker and I need to get from one side to another side. We've got to cross a, a, you know, a torrential river that's down there. Just the, the rapids are raging. And he's my one and only son. And we cross this rickety bridge together. And we're going across. And Tucker's foot hits a bad board. And he falls all the way through into the water. And so I jump in to save my son. And in the process, I die. Probably newspapers would write and go, wow, isn't this amazing, this father who sacrificed for a son? Isn't that incredible that, that you would give, he would give his life? But here's the thing, everyone would understand that love. 
Everybody. You'd all go, of course, it's his son, right? He died because his son just went in the water. And there's no father in this room that goes, I wouldn't do the same for my son. Okay, well, let's change it to a biblical picture. Well, that is not the image at all. The image is, I'm going to jump in the water, but this time, the person who falls to the bridge is somebody that, let's suppose, I've been overwhelmingly generous to and kind to and tried to help and serve in every way I can and they hate me and they persecute me and they mock me or maybe they are just utterly apathetic towards me. You mean nothing to me. In spite of everything you've ever done, I can't stand you. I want nothing to do with you, Chris. And let's say now that person jumps in and I dive in with the same gusto and in in saving them, I lose my life. Well, now... Now people are going, I'm not, I don't even know that I can, I can comprehend what just happened. See, this is why Paul breaks out in a song. While we were still weak, Christ died for us. One will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us. And that while we were still sinners and sinning, and running from God, and rebelling against Him, and hateful, and hating one another, and apathetic towards Him, and living life without reference to Him, Paul says, Christ died for us. That's amazing. This is how we, if we don't, if we don't understand sin, then we do not fully understand. See, some of you would say, I, I, I don't feel like I love God the way I should. I don't feel like my affections are stirred the way I should. I, I feel like I'm colder. I want to have this, this, this great love for God. It's not there. I want to suggest to you that maybe one of the reasons it's not there is because you don't think your sin is that big a deal? You kind of thought you deserved it. You think God just rescued basically a good person. You don't see that he made a wretch his treasure. You don't see amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch. Because when you see the hideousness of your sin, you'll see the graciousness of God. Okay, so now, Now, Jesus is going to start to plumb the depths of the human heart, and we're going to start to learn how bad sin really is. So how bad is it? How bad is our sin? Well, let's start reading in verses 27 and 28, and let's just, we'll kind of cycle through this and and listen to what he says. You've heard that it was said. Now, he's, he's used this formula before. He's going to use it six times in this passage. You've heard that it was said, but I say, so he says, you've heard that it said this time, you shall not commit adultery. Verse 28, but I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Now, we've got the obvious of what Jesus just said, but let me Let me suggest to you, he's showing something to us about sin. He's showing something to us about our heart. And the first thing he's telling us is that sin is a deep and a powerful disease. Right? Jesus says it's it's bound up in your heart. You've got this disease of the heart. And this is not new. This is not Jesus didn't make up this teaching. This is an this is a very old teaching you see all through the Old Testament that God never just wanted outward obedience. God was always after the heart of his people that would say I want to obey, I desire to obey. I'm so grateful for what God has done for me. 
But what Jesus wants you and I to see is that where his focus is should be where our focus is. And he's saying, focus more on sin than you do sins. Now, let me explain what I mean by that. Let's talk about sin versus sins, okay? Sin is what the Bible talks about indwells everybody. It's, it's this presence, it's this disease, if I can use medical terminology. Sins, plural, are just the symptoms, and we all do different ones. We all manifest different symptoms. So, so you got the disease and you got the symptoms. If I'm a doctor, the last thing I want to do is simply treat the symptoms. I may have a patient that presents with this symptom and another patient that presents with this symptom, and they may have the same disease. And Jesus says, we don't just treat the symptoms, we go after the root cause. So Jesus says, Chris, you may never murder somebody. You may never exhibit the symptom of adultery outwardly, but I'm looking at the underlying sin problem, Chris, and it's there in your heart, and that's what we've got to deal with. We don't just deal with the symptoms. There's something going on underneath there. So he looks and he goes, how's your heart, Chris? You got any lustful intent in there? Now, we all know what this means, right? Every human being has, I guess, what I would call a innate beauty receptor, okay, right? That is that it, it, um, you were born to, to innately um, see and appreciate beauty. And that can, that can go into interpersonal things, right? So, so I could say that, that if, uh, if a beautiful woman walks in a room, every guy in that room is going to register, there's a beautiful woman. If a really handsome man, the girls are going to, that's a, that's a handsome man, right? That's, that's how God wired us to go, I, 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 I see the beauty. Now, we all know, though, there's a difference between merely seeing beauty and then going further. And I go beyond beauty and I start to think about body parts. I go beyond beauty and I start to fantasize. And I may never wind up in bed with that person, but Jesus says, you're already there in your heart. That's lustful intent. You know what lust is? You know, you know what, when the Bible talks about lust, it's, really, it's a really uh, interesting word. In the Greek, it's this combination of two words, epi, which means over, and thumeo, which means desire. Put them together, it's an over-desire. This is not just a plain desire. This is not like, oh, I'd like that. This is a, I must have that. This is something where you, you now look and a man looks at another man's wife or a man looks at a woman who isn't his husband and in his mind he's thinking this, not just she's beautiful, but I want her to the place that I, I believe she could actually fulfill me. You look at a man and go, I believe he could actually fulfill me in a way that this one isn't. You don't even have to be married to commit adultery according to Jesus. You just look at another person and in your mind you're saying, that person could make me happy. 
That thing, that, that something else could make me. You know what we're doing when we say, when we look at someone else or something else and we say, oh, they could fill up the hole in my heart. They could make me happy. Do you know what that's called? It's called worship. It's called this, like this person, I, I actually think this other person is going to fill up this gaping hole in my heart. And this is why in the Old Testament, you're going to see Jesus, God, say to his people, you wicked and adulterous generation, you adulterous people, over and over. A whole book, the book of Hosea, is written to talk about adultery, spiritual adultery. Why would God talk about adultery in a relationship between him, a God, and us human beings? Because it's not sexual. He's saying because you have an over-desire. You're lusting after the things of this world. You've got these pseudo-messiahs. You've got these false messiahs out there that you're looking to say, oh, save me. Come into my life and save me. Change me. You can do this. this is what, every person has some savior they're chasing. Every person has something they're giving ultimate significance. And when you give that other thing ultimate significance, that's worship. And Jesus is saying, do you have any of that in your heart? And if you do, the reason you have that in your heart is because you have a disease, and that disease is called sin. So that John Owen is going to say something frightening. Look what he says. John Owen says, your enemy is not only upon you, but is in you. Sin is a living coal continually in your house. What do you mean by living coal? I mean, it's a burning. I mean, it's like, the, like it's glowing. And we all know that a glowing coal, if it's not kept safely, like, like, like preserved, and like we make sure it doesn't get out of control, it will burn your house down. And John Owen says, this is what will happen. We have to guard. We have to, we have to make sure that we aren't letting that sin get out of control. See, the problem is not just the acts of sin. The problem is my heart. The problem is the urge. The problem is the motivation. The problem is what's in there that caused me to do this in the first place. So it's in your heart. So Jesus is exploring, I mean, getting down and saying, do you got any of this in your heart? Your heart is where the problem lies. But the second thing he's saying is that sin is perverse. Here's what sin will do. Sin, what I mean by perverse is it twists. It twists what is good and pleasant. What God gave as a gift, it will twist. So this is why, we'll look at it in a moment. This is why he goes on to talk about your eyes and your, your hands. God gave you an eye, eyes, to, as a, with an instinct for beauty. You know what sin does? Sin takes that instinct and it perverts it. So now your eye becomes a gateway for this sin of lust that takes over your heart. Or how about your hand? There's an instinct to help. Now your hands become an instrument for hurt. Sin does that. I mean, this drives Paul mad. Paul looks at, in Romans chapter 7, and says, man, I hate this. I do things I don't want to do. I don't do things I do want to do. And he looks and says, let me explain to you why this is happening. Because sin perverts things. Sin even takes the perfect, holy, just law of God that we cannot criticize, and he says it takes that and it twists it so that it becomes an instrument for evil. So he gives us an example. He says, you know what? I didn't even know what coveting was. Then 
Then the law came and said to me, Paul, don't covet your neighbor's wife. Don't covet his car. Don't covet his house. And he said, you know what happened to me? Sin, this indwelling sin in my heart, seized an opportunity, perverted the law. And now I go, I didn't even know that coveting exists until sin perverted this thing. And now I want my neighbor's wife. And now I want my neighbor's house. And now I want my neighbor's car. Right? This is, this is, you know, let's suppose you're in your house and you've got kids and, and you bake some cookies and they have no idea that you've baked the cookies. And you take them and you put them in a jar and you put them on the shelf. You're about to leave the house, leave the kids alone, and on the way out the door you say, kids, some guests are coming over later. Do not eat the cookies that are in the jar on that shelf. And the kids are like, are you kidding me, mom and dad? I didn't even know they existed until you just told me. And now I do. And guess what you just did to my heart? Now, the whole time you're gone, I'm going to be thinking, i got to fight it. Dang it, I can't have one of those, and I want one of those cookies really bad. Why? Because of sin. See, without sin, mom and dad would say, hey, don't eat the cookies. And you'd go, okay. Makes sense. But with sin, it comes in and goes, no. No, you can't. I, I want what I cannot have and I must not have because sin twists and it perverts. But lastly, sin is destructive. The Bible says the wages of sin is death. It will kill you. You will be punished for sin. Sin is what brings upon hell. The doctrine of hell makes no sin without, it makes no sense without sin. And there is a destruction awaiting those who say this doesn't matter. I don't need to deal with this sin problem. That's what Jesus is saying. Man, it is better that you enter the future life maimed, if you will, than, than that you, you still have a hand or an eye because there is this place of punishment. There is this thing that happens to those who don't have this sin problem dealt with. It will destroy you. That's the words of Jesus. Okay, so then, then how do we battle it? How do we deal with the problem of sin? Well, look at what Jesus says. Look at verse 29. He says, if your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members and your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off, throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members and your whole body go into hell. Now, that's shocking. What, are you kidding me? Like, there's some church fathers that took this literally. Church father Origen actually castrated himself, trying to be obedient to this. Jesus is not after self-mutilation. He's after self-denial. Okay, he, he, this, is, this is just, this is, he talks like other people talk. He uses things we use. We use something called hyperbole, right? I'll never do that in a million years. It took her forever to get over here. I will kill you if you eat that piece of cake. We don't mean that, right? We just mean, please, please, please don't eat that piece of cake, right? So, so Jesus is using this extreme statement to make a very real point. He's saying if something very precious, right hand, right eye, is causing you to sin, it's not worth it. Cut it out of your life. Stop watching. Stop listening. Stop participating. Stop going there. Stop doing that thing that's causing you to sin. 
Even if it means that, that people will look at you and say, man, you're ignorant. Man, you're not really with the times. Man, I can't believe you haven't read that book. Man, I can't believe you haven't watched that movie. I can't see. See, some of us are so dumb when it comes to what we will allow ourselves to see and do and watch and listen to. We allow anything because we're free in Christ. And it's not what Jesus says. He says, if that freedom is causing you to stumble, don't do it. You have never heard a preacher come up on this stage and say, Christians must not go to certain ratings of movies, ever. We've never talked like that. You've never heard a Christian, a person stand up here and say, do not drink alcohol. Don't you go dancing. We don't talk like that. What we've said is, man, you better know your own heart. You better know what the limits are. Because what is no problem for one person may be, and that word stumble that Jesus uses, the word um, scandalize, or the word sin is the word scandalize. It just means to like stumble over. It causes you to fall. It causes you to fail. See, how discerning, how, how in touch are you with your heart and the things that you're allowing yourself to do, thinking either it's no big deal and yet you keep falling into these same sins over and over again? Just saying, pay attention to your heart. Walk away from those things. Don't allow them to come into your heart. John Owen says this. He says, be killing sin or sin will be killing you. In other words, we don't feed the beast. You know what I mean by that? I don't walk around a fire with a gas can. I don't, if I got an alligator in the pool, I don't throw him a chicken, right? It's like, hey, stay, I'd like you to be in my pool. You say, I starve them, I shoo them away. I, I am killing sin or sin will be killing me. I do everything in my power. I don't look at certain things. I don't, I shouldn't, shouldn't participate in certain things. Those may be different for you than they are for me but I better know my heart well enough that I don't feed this disease that is bound up in my heart. You know, I realized a couple of summers ago, I took a sabbatical and I decided before I left, I was just gonna erase all social media from my phone and all that. I was just not gonna look at it at all. And man, the deeper I got into that time off, the more I was like, wow, this is really, really good for me. Because I'm just going to tell you how I struggled. I'm not saying this is your struggle. This was my struggle. I would get on social media and Instagram and Twitter and Facebook. And here's what I found happening in my heart. I want your better life. I want the food you eat. I want your awesome vacation. I want your ridiculously successful church. My heart was going places. I did not want it to go. And Jesus says, it is better. Well, then you'll be thought of as antisocial. You'll be thought of as ignorant. You'll be thought of as like not with the times. You, you, you might be criticized. You might be rejected. There might be things you have to cut out that other people would find, find offensive. And Jesus says, and? Far better that you lose those things. Far better that you are radical with these things. That you are absolutely ruthless with this evil that wants to take over you than that you go into eternal life 
lost. Way better. So we don't feed the beast, but the second thing we do is we give our soul priority. See, what's most important for you? Every person in this room has something that has top billing for you. It could be a person, a child, a career, it could be money, leisure. I don't know. What is most, what takes top, like this is what I'm gunning for all the time. And Jesus says there is nothing more important to gun for than the protection, the preservation, the help of your soul. There is no person, no thing, no relationship that should trump the priority of you managing, caring for your eternal soul. I mean, so much so. Look what he says in Luke chapter 14. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and his wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Now again, this is not the Jesus of, hey, let's just love one another. This is radical. Now, I got three children sitting right here. Does that mean I'm supposed to hate them? I'm supposed to hate Michelle? I'm supposed to hate my parents? No. What is this a hyperbole again? He's saying there must not be one relationship in your life that takes precedence over this. You cannot be my disciple. There is, there is no greater allegiance that your life must have than me. Your soul is the priority. What profit does it give a man to gain the whole world and lose his soul? That's the idea. Give your soul priority and cut out anything that's dragging you down. Cut out anything that's leading you to death. Cut out anything that's bringing you to sin. So Paul's going to say, don't you present your members to sin for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as ones who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will no longer be your master, for you are not under the law, you're under grace. Go there, do that. But what if you do these things? Man, see, this one, I don't want to give you, hey, five things, you'll know, be rid of sin. I don't, we don't like to talk like that. That's, that's, that's gibberish. It's nonsense. What if you say, Chris, I'm trying to do this. I'm trying to make God my priority. Chris, I'm still trying. I'm, 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 I'm trying to not feed the beast in my life. I'm trying to stay away from those things. I've tried to cut out things that I know are leading me there. And I am still struggling with sin. How do you answer that? Well, I, I quoted John Owen earlier. And I, honestly, I just... John Owen is one of the greatest gifts that God ever gave to his church. He is a dead man, centuries old. He was a Puritan. But he plumbed scriptures and plumbed the depths of the human heart in ways that I don't know that anybody else has ever done it. And he has some of the most profound insights and helpful insights about sin and how we deal with it. He wrote a whole book on the mortification of sin that is absolutely just mind-blowingly brilliant in his insights. He's like a doctor of the human soul. And so I'm, I'm not... I, I'm not going to say, hey, here's what Chris thinks. I want to show you. I want to quote to you a few quotes from John Owen and just explain to you what he's saying. So if you say, man, I'm still struggling with sin. I'm still, I hate this. Why is this still happening to me? Listen to John Owen and maybe this will help you. Let's look at the first one. He says, to kill sin is the work of living men. 
when, where men are dead, as all unbelievers are dead, sin is alive and will live. You know what he, you know what he said? He said, Christian, take heart. Do you find yourself wrestling with sin? Is there a sin in your life that you're like, I hate this thing and I feel like I'm warring against it all the time? He says, awesome. That's exactly what that is showing you is that the presence of the Spirit of God is there warring in you because if the opposite of true, if sin can run through your life unopposed, he's saying it doesn't matter how alive that sin makes you feel. You're a dead man. You are a dead man. It's incredible. So you're still struggling with sin? Good. Keep struggling. It's a sign you're living. That's the, that's the job of living men. Look at this next one. God says, here's one. If he could be rid of this lust, I should never hear of him more. Let him wrestle with this or he is lost. This is amazing. Here's what he just said. He said, sometimes God ordains to allow a sin, a lust, to remain in your life. And he does not overthrow and triumph over that sin by his grace because he knows that once he does that, you will abandon him because you'll say, mission accomplished, that thing is over. I don't need God anymore. He knows your heart better than you. Does the sin grieve him? Does he hate it like you hate it? He does. He hates it more than you hate it. But he's saying, until, Chris, you can get to the place where you lean into me just as much before the triumph as after the triumph, I'm going to keep that there. See, this is, makes you examine your life and say, man, am I ready? Am I fully submitted to Christ? Am I, is this one of these things where, man, it doesn't matter? I want, if, if, if he were to triumph over this, God help me. You know my heart. I pray that I would just push and press into you before and after, not just before. How about this one? Christ is the head from whence the new man must have influences of life and strength or it will decay every day. You know what he just said? Grace decays. You want to overthrow sin in your life? You can't do it without the grace of God. You understand? I'm not, this is not a bootstrap Christianity. Try harder. What he's saying is we need daily, moment by moment, the infusion of the grace of God. This is why reading your Bible is so important. This is why prayer, your devotional life is important. This is why coming to church and making it a habit is important. This is why growth groups are important. This is you doing everything in your power to receive the infusion of the grace of God, if you will. And you need it every day because grace decays. Apart, if, if, the, if the, the branch is not grafted to the vine, if it's not vitally, desperately, dependently connected to the vine, it will wither up and it's only good for the fire, Jesus says. You need me. You need me. I need thee every hour I need thee. Do you understand that? See, some of us think, I can go weeks without the grace of God. Months, maybe even just a couple of times a year. I don't need this. Well, you can say that. But if you hope to triumph and see this sin that is killing you triumphed over, you will not do it apart from the grace of God. We don't do it by our own willpower. We do it because of the enabling 
triumphant grace of God. It is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. That's it. So Christian, fight. Fight, keep fighting. I struggle with sin. Keep struggling. Because ultimately, we have to decide, am I going to live for this life or the life to come? I've got to decide, am I, am I going to be ordinary and try to blend in, or am I going to be weird? Am, am I going to you know, live for Jesus or live for the crowd? Am I willing to be maimed in this life by missing out? through the disapproval of other people, through the rejection of other people, by refusing to do certain things, are you willing to be maimed that way if it means not missing out on the life to come? So that's the issue. Sin is a ruthless, ruthless evil. And it is bound up in your heart and mind and we have to be ruthless with it. Let's pray, Father.